And now we come to the conclusion of our story. But before we begin, have a look at your map. And find Sarvati or Shravasti, which is in the northwest, where Jetta's Grove is. And then Rajgaha, down in the southeast corner. The distance along the trade route from one to the others, about the same distance as from San Francisco to Los Angeles. So when the Buddha leaves Savati, once his position there becomes untenable, he, he effectively walks the equivalent from here to Los Angeles in stages, maybe seven or eight miles a day. And remember, he could well have had a very badly injured foot. Maybe he's carried now. That's how I visualize it. He gets down to Rajgaha, has the encounter with Ajatasattu. Ajatasattu confesses his transgression, is forgiven, but again, somewhat um, ambiguously condemned. The Buddha, shortly thereafter, leaves Rajgir, goes all the way back to Kapilavastu, about the equivalent of walking from here to Santa Barbara. And now we leave, we, we left him yesterday about to make the return journey, about to go from Santa Barbara back to here on foot. Except now, behind him, we can imagine poles of smoke rising from burning homesteads and towns, refugees, images that are familiar to us on our television screens from parts of the world today. His country is potentially in ruins. He doesn't know. He's leaving. He has no way of finding out. I always find it very um, useful to try to imagine these situations having bracketed off everything that I know about what happened next. To try to put myself in the Buddhas and Anandas and Pasenades and Ajatasattu's present moment. They don't know what's going to happen the next day, let alone what's going to be the fate of everything that they have worked for their whole lives long to establish the teaching and the community I would imagine at this point the Buddha probably didn't have a very optimistic sense of what the future held. He saw destruction all around him, his work, his community probably scattered far and wide. And it's telling that in the sutta that I read yesterday, the Dhammachetya Sutta, translated as Monuments to the Dhamma, Again, we have to question if that's an accurate translation. The word chetia doesn't really mean monument, which sounds like something rather grandiose. The Buddha says, everything the king has just told me, monks, his praise of me, his praise of my teaching, think of those as chetia to the Dhamma. Now, chetia meant, at his time, a funeral urn. It's the word that then becomes now widely current as stupa. Now, the Buddhist time, before there was a cult of stupas, which are monuments, these were the places where you put the ashes and the remains of something that had died. I think one might just as legitimately translate Dhammachetya as tombstones of the Dhamma. These monks, the king's praises, these are tombstones of the Dhamma on which something is inscribed in a churchyard, but something dead. I find that a very um, moving, but also uh, a rather tragic image. So the Buddha now heads south. We know that he's with Ananda, possibly with 
some other monks, but I picture this as a fairly small group who would now be in exile from this destruction. They head south through the Mala country until they reach Vishali. And Vishali is a place that's figured quite a lot in this story. To me, Vishali is a kind of an open space, a midpoint between all these points of conflict, the place where he accepted his stepmother into the community. And also, Vishali being the now the very last remaining republic in ancient India. Now, when he reached Vishali, he would probably have learnt two things. He would have learnt of the fate of King Persenadi. Persenadi, as we learnt yesterday, was found himself overthrown when he left the Buddha's hut. His general had departed and had crowned his son, Persenadi's son, Vidudaba, king. Persenadi has been abandoned. He's an old man. He gets on his horse and he walks away, his servant woman maybe walking by his side. I like to think that this would have been a moment of truth for him, that he may then have taken to heart what he had heard the Buddha say and teach. But again, we have no evidence for that. All we know from the text is that he does in fact reach Rajgaha. Again, this would take probably three weeks to a month to get that far. But when he arrives at the great city, it's night, the gates of the city are closed, the soldiers don't let him in, and yet behind those walls he knows that there is his daughter, who's the wife of Ajatasattu, the king, his grandson, his grandson, Ubayabada, who we met on Ajatasattu's, during Ajatasattu's uh, um, discussions with the Buddha in the grove of Jivaka. And yet he's not allowed in. He spends the night in a guest house outside the city walls. And the next morning, he's found dead. Ajatasattu apparently gives him a grand funeral. But that is the end of Persenadi. So the great figures, the great supporters of the Buddha, Bimbisara and Persenadi, both of them are now dead. And the Buddha, in a way, is all that more alone of those of his generation. Now he also, the second thing he would have learned, that... Uh, Veshali, which is the capital of what's called at that time the Vajian Confederacy, is also under threat from an invasion from Magadha. A fortress is being built on the river at Pataliputta, Patna, just to the south, and the Vajians would have been aware of the mounting um, prospect of invasion from the south. The Buddha doesn't stay at Vishali. He goes across the river and heads for Rajgaha, Rajgir. And on arriving in Rajgir, we, um, the story picks up um, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the 16th discourse of the Diga Nikaya, one of the most famous texts in the early canon. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta recounts the Buddha's last days. And it's a very rare text in that it gives us uh, a very precise chronology of events. It tells us this story. And it doesn't... um, mix its words. The opening of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which I'm going to read, uh, cuts straight to the chase, as you say in America. But I would argue that without having the background that we've been 
exploring in the last days, it would probably make little sense. Let me just read the opening paragraph. Thus I have heard, once the Lord was staying at Rajgaha on the mountain called Vulture's Peak. Now just then, King Ajatasattu of Magadha wanted to attack the Vajians. He said, I will strike the Vajians who are so powerful and strong. I will cut them off and destroy them. I will bring them to ruin and destruction. And King Ajatasattu said to his chief minister, the Brahmin Vasakara, Brahmin, go to the Buddha, worship him with your head to his feet in my name, ask if he is free from sickness or disease, and then say, Lord, King Ajatasattu wishes to attack the Vajians. He will cut them off and destroy them. And whatever the Buddha declares to you, report that faithfully back to me, for Buddhas never lie. Now this is creepy. (laughs) But the weight of it, I think, only comes out when we know the context. I have the sense, perhaps, that the Buddha is, is heading into Rajgir, into the heart of darkness almost, not only perhaps to seek some support for Shakya, but very possibly now as a peace emissary for Vaishali, for the Vajians. But immediately on his first encounter with an emissary of the king, he must realize that events have now spun out of any control that he could exert over them. Very good, sir, said Vasakara to the king. And he had the state carriages harnessed and he mounted one of them and drove in state from Rajgaha to Vulture's Peak. And then he, um, he goes to the Buddha. And it says, And now the Venerable Ananda was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him. Again, a curious little glimpse of an elderly man up on a hillside, on a peak, his attendant, also now quite old, fanning him, and the general arrives, and he states what the king has told him to ask. And this is how the Buddha replies. He says, as long as the Vajians meet in harmony, break up in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony, they may be expected to prosper and not decline Have you not heard that the Vajians do not authorize what has not been authorized already, do not abolish what has been, do not abolish what has been authorized, but proceed according to what has been authorized by their ancient tradition? And this seems to be a reference to the way in which the Vajians conduct their business, their affairs of state, through remaining in harmony. And this, of course, is what is necessary in any kind of um, consensual or democratic decision-making process. Remember that the Vajians are those who have the greatest assembly for such forms of government, which has actually been excavated. You can see it today, this large hall with all the foundations of it. And then he gives some other criteria too as to why the Vajians will prosper, but all along those lines. And to this, the general, or the minister, I'm sorry, Minister Vasakara replies, Reverend Gautama, if the Vajians keep to even one of these principles, they may be expected to prosper and not decline. Certainly, the Vajians will never be conquered by King Ajatasattu by force of arms, but only by means of propaganda and setting them against one another. And now, Reverend Gautama, may I depart... I am busy and have much to do. And so off he goes. And then the Buddha turns to Ananda and launches into a long discourse comparing his community, his Sangha, to the Vajians, to the Vajian assembly. And he talks of how his community likewise will only thrive should it be maintained in harmony, meet in harmony, break up in harmony, and so forth. And this is the last 
teaching he gives in Rajgaha, because then he decides to leave. So having made all of, having made all of this journey, he now realizes that whatever mission he may have come on, it seems little hope of it being fulfilled to help Shakya, to help the Vajians. And so now he returns back to Shakya. So he's just walked all the way from Santa Barbara to San Francisco, and now he's going to walk all the way back. And it's that journey that is described in this text, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So he heads northwest back to Pataliputta, back to Patna, and remarks on the, on the fortifications that are being built on the northern bank or the southern bank, probably, of the river and makes predictions about how this will become a great city. And in fact, it does. Under Ashoka, Pataliputta becomes the capital of the Mauryan Empire, one of the most powerful cities in Asia of its day, if not the most powerful. He crosses the river, as he would have to, heads back to Vishali. Now, when he gets back to Vishali one has the impression that the city is already falling into some kind of disarray. And rather than stay where he normally did, in fact on virtually every other occasion that I'm aware of, in the Mahavan, in the forest, in the house with the gabled roof, which was his base there, he decides to stay in the grove of Ambapali, the courtesan. And it's here that he issues a teaching which I think we can take really together with the other teachings we find in this text as his last testaments. And there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, a monk should be mindful and clearly aware. This is my charge to you. And how is a monk clearly aware? When going forward or backward, he is aware of what he's doing. In looking forward or back, he is aware of what he is doing. In bending and stretching, he is aware of what he is doing. In carrying his inner and outer robe and bowl, he is aware of what he is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing and savouring, he is aware of what he is doing. In passing excrement or urine, he is aware of what he is doing. In walking, standing, sitting or lying down, in keeping awake, in speaking, or staying silent, he is aware of what he is doing. That is how a monk is clearly aware. So this is very much a call to full consciousness. And I think it's telling that in this period of of external crisis, he reminds his followers just come back and be fully aware of what you are doing in every detail. Don't let the external environment distract you from this injunction to be fully and totally aware of what is going on and live and act from there. We then get this curious episode where the Lichavis, who are one of the principal tribes in Vishali, um, find out that the Buddha is not um, staying where he normally does, but in the grove of Ambapali. Ambapali is an interesting figure. Um, She's effectively like a geisha, a, 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 a highly refined woman of pleasure, but also skilled in the arts, educated really, but still running largely from her livelihood of prostitution. And the Buddha is then approached by some of the young noblemen of Vaishali, and one has the sense from these descriptions that these are like many privileged young people at times when their society is falling apart, who somehow remain impervious to the crisis around them and continue as Nero fiddled as Rome burned to simply just enjoy themselves. And it says, 
and some of the young Lichavis were all in blue, with blue makeup, blue clothes and blue adornment, while some were in yellow, some in red, some in white, with white makeup, white clothes and white adornment. And they came up to Ambapali and they said, Ambapali, give up this meal you are about to offer to the Buddha for a hundred thousand pieces of gold. And Ambapali replies, Young sirs, if you were to give me all Vishali with all its revenues, I would not forsake the offering of this meal. And then the Lichavis snapped their fingers, saying, We've been beaten by the mango woman. We've been cheated by the mango woman. <laughs> Amba, Amba means mango. Ambapali. That's part of her name. So again, we get this curious glimpse of a world in disarray, behaving much as I think people in a comparable situation would behave today. So the Buddha stays in Vaishali, first at Ambapali's grove, and then when the rains come, he says, I shall spend the rains here in Beluva. Now Beluva is described as a little village. And he says, you monks, go elsewhere in Vaishali where you have friends or acquaintances or supporters and spend the rains there. But I'm going to remain by myself in Beluva. And then the text goes on. And during the rains, the Lord was attacked by a severe sickness with sharp pains as if he were about to die. But he endured all this mindfully, clearly aware and without complaining. And he thought, it's not fitting that I should attain the final Nibbana without addressing my followers and taking leave of the order of monks. I must hold this disease in check by energy and apply myself to the force of life. And then at the end of the retreat, he's recovered somewhat from this sickness. And it says, And then the Lord, having recovered from his sickness, as soon as he felt better, went outside and sat on a prepared seat in front of his dwelling. Then the venerable Ananda came to him, saluted him, sat down at one side and said, Lord, I have seen the Lord in comfort, and I have seen the Lord's patient enduring. And Lord, my body was like a drunkard's. I lost my bearings, and things were unclear to me because of the Lord's sickness. The only thing that was of some comfort was the thought, the Buddha will not attain final Nibbana until he has made some statement about the order of monks. And the Buddha says, But Ananda, what does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the Dhamma, Ananda, making no inner and outer. In other words, no distinction between a kind of special esoteric teaching and some general doctrine that I gave to the masses. The Buddha has no closed teacher's fist in respect of doctrines. In other words, I don't hold anything back. I've told you what I know. If there's anyone who thinks, I shall take charge of the order, or the order should refer to me, then let him make some statement about the order. But the Buddha does not think in such terms. In other words, at this point, he has relinquished his command. And he has simply left the order, the community, with the Dhamma, with the teachings. And that is sufficient. Remember yesterday he said to Devadatta, I would not even give over control of the order to Sariputta or Moggallana. In other words, I don't think this way. I'm not interested in appointing a successor. Ananda, he continues, I am now old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's path, I have reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together with straps, so that a targeter's body is kept going by being strapped up. Therefore, Ananda, 
you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does a monk live as an island unto himself with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as body. And then he continues and repeats what he's said before. So this is very much, I feel, his final advice. And from here, from Vaishali, they head north and they reach as far as um, a town called Parva. Parva's not marked on the map, but it's about, about five or six miles uh, south of Kushinara. It's the modern town of Kasya. And um, so the Lord went with a company of monks to Parva, where he stayed at the mango grove of Kunda the smith. And Kunda heard that the Lord had arrived in Parva and was staying at his mango grove. So he went to the Buddha, sat down at one side, and the Lord instructed, inspired, and delighted him with a talk on Dhamma. And then Kunda said, May the Lord accept a meal from me tomorrow with his order of monks. And the Buddha agreed. And as the night was ending, Kunda had a fine meal of hard and soft food prepared with an abundance of pig's delight. Now, a lot, a lot of academic time and energy has been spent <laughs> on trying to understand what this pig's delight was. Whether it was truffles or mushrooms, which is the preferred interpretation of the vegetarian lobby. <laughs> In other words, things that delight pigs or whether it was something more approaching bacon or hot dogs, we don't know. (laughs) So then the Buddha, having dressed in the morning, took his robe and bowl and went to Kunda's dwelling, where he sat down on the prepared seat and said to Kunda, serve the pig's delight that's been prepared to me and serve the remaining hard and soft food to the order of monks, which Kunda does. And then the Buddha says, what's ever left over of the pig's delight, you should bury it in a pit. Because it's, uh, if anyone, the only person in this world who could digest such food is the Tathagata, the Buddha. <laughs> so they bury the remains of the pig's delight in a pit. And after having eaten the meal provided by Kunda, the Lord was attacked by a severe sickness with bloody diarrhea and with sharp pains as if he were to die. But he endured all this mindfully and clearly aware and without complaint. And then he said to Ananda, let us go to Kusinara. And so the last stage of this journey, which you can follow still today, entails crossing a little river in which the Buddha had his last bath and drank his last drinks. And then they arrive... Um, outside Kusinara, and he says, Ananda, prepare me a bed between these twin sal trees with my head to the north. Now, what's at the north? Shakya. This, I feel, is his destination, and he wishes somehow to die with the thought that he may return, that he may be of some value to his community. I am tired, and I want to lie down. And so... He does. Now, Ananda is very upset. He says, May the Lord not pass away in this miserable little town of wattle and daub, right in the jungle in the back of beyond. Lord, there are other great cities such as Kampa, Rajgaha, Savati, Saketa, Kosambi or Varanasi. In those places there are wealthy followers who are devoted to you and will provide for your funeral in the proper style. And the Buddha says, don't be ridiculous. Well, he doesn't say that. But the, the, <laughs> he says, he actually makes an ironic comment. He says, Ananda, 
Hundreds of years ago, this little wattle and daub town was the great city of Kusavati. And then he describes this glorious place that is no more. But of course, the reality is that he's about to die. One feels that he only has a small coterie of his closest followers with him. Ananda and Anuruddha, his two cousins, are known to be there. And a small group of younger monks. And Ananda, at this point, breaks down. And the Venerable Ananda went into his lodging and stood lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. Alas, he thinks, I'm still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away, who was so compassionate to me. And the Buddha said, Enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful, are changeable, subject to separation and becoming something else. For a long time, Ananda, you've been in my presence, showing me loving-kindness in body, speech and mind. You've achieved much merit, Ananda. Make the effort, and in a short time, you too will be free of delusions and defilements. And there's a, then there's a number of monks who come to say their farewell, some other ascetics from other traditions. But finally, the moment comes for the Buddha to die. And then his last words are these. Then the Lord said to the monks, Now, monks, I declare to you, Vaya Dharma Sankara Apamadena Sampatita, which I would translate as Condition things break down. Tread the path with care. Now the most famous translation of this is, all condition things are impermanent. Work out your salvation with diligence. There is no word for salvation in here at all. In fact, this is Rice David's translation, which is an adaptation of a passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. (laughs) which says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Buddha suggests, not fear and trembling, but apamada, diligence, care, vigilance. And these were the Tathagata's last words. And so this brings us to the death of the Buddha, but it doesn't bring us to the end of the story. The canon continues to tell us what happened next up until the first council, which took place seven or eight months later. So we're now going to find out how events Um, unfolded after the Buddha's passing. So we're still in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Now just then it says, and this is a few days after the Buddha had died, and the local people have been performing rituals and rites around the body. Now just then the venerable Kasapa, the great Mahakasapa, was traveling along the main road from Pava to Kusinara with a large company of about 500 monks, as usual. In other words, a lot of monks. And leaving the road, the Venerable Kasapa sat down under a tree. And a certain Ajivaka happened to be coming along the road and had picked up a coral tree flower in Kusinara. The Venerable Kasapa saw him coming from afar and said to him, Friend, do you know of our teacher? Yes, friend, I do, says the Ajivaka. The ascetic Gautama passed away a week ago. And sitting in the group was a monk called Subhada, who had gone forth late in life, it says, and he said this to the monks, Enough, friends, do not weep and wail. We are well rid of that great ascetic. We were always bothered by his saying, it is fitting for you to do this, it is not fitting for you to do that. Now we can do what we want and we and not do what we don't like. 
And it's at this point that the Mahaparinibbana Sutta segues straight into the si- a similar passage in the Vinaya, in the monastic discipline. And that's where I'm going to pick that up. But before we go there, there's one other episode. Kasapa then goes to Kusinara and he circumambulates the Buddha's body and he lifts the cloth from the Buddha's feet and kisses them and honors them. And then when the other monks have done likewise, the pyre spontaneously bursts into flame. So it says. But what is curious about this, I feel, is why was Kasapa a week behind everybody else? He's obviously pursuing the party of the Buddha and Ananda and Anuruddha, but he's somehow left behind. I find that odd. It could simply have been that he had got word of the Buddha's uh, illness and Vaishali and set out to try to meet him before he died. That would be one explanation. But still, there seems to have been a separation between these two groups with the major disciples of Ananda and Anuruddha with the Buddha, but Kasapa somehow lagging behind. But Subhada's um, comments, um, we're well rid of this great ascetic, act as the trigger for Kasapa to say, come, let us monks chant the Dhamma and the discipline, the Vinaya, before what is not Dhamma shines out and Dhamma is withheld, before what is not discipline shines out and discipline is withheld. So he's basically saying, look, we now have to act in such a way that we ensure that these teachings and these practices are preserved before the kind of attitude of this old monk gains currency. So the other monks say, very well, honoured sir, then please select the elder monks. Then the Venerable Kasapa the Great selected 500 perfected ones, less one. And monks spoke to the Venerable Kasapa and said, Sir, this Ananda, although he is still a learner, could not be one to follow a wrong course through desire, anger, delusion or fear. He has mastered much Dhamma and discipline under the Buddha. Let him be included as well. Then the Venerable Kasapa the Great selected the Venerable Ananda as well. So it seems that already at this point, a few days after the Buddha's death, there is emerging a split between Kasapa and Ananda. And Kasapa has to be, as it were, persuaded to include Ananda within the council. In the Tibetan version of this passage, which comes from a, a Savastavadin text in Sanskrit, um, Kasapa apparently says that Ananda can come as the, um, as the person who brings the refresh, refreshments in the breaks. <laughs> and then the monks decide, um, well, where are we going to recite all these texts? And the, 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 the Dhamma and the Vinaya, and they decide to go back to Rajgir. So again, if we look on the map, you think of poor old Ananda. He's now he's he's walked from Shakya to Rajgar, then he's walked all the way back to Kushinara, and now he's got to walk all the way back to Rajgaha. This is a lot of walking, a lot of hiking around. And so they head back to Rajgaha, and they head back effectively to a kingdom ruled by a Jatasattu. He's the one who, in a way, will guarantee the preservation and the continuity of the Dhamma. Now, we might be asking, well, what about the other great disciples? What about Sariputta and Moggallana? These are mentioned in the earlier part of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, particularly Sariputta. But by this point, when the Buddha has died, both Sariputta and Moggallana are dead as well. Moggallana was murdered, according to the text. Um, in a hill not far from Vulture's Peak, he was set upon by brigands 
and killed. Ajatasattu launched an inquiry into this to see who was responsible and found that the brigands had been ordered to kill Moggallana by the Jains. So he had these Jains arrested and then he buried them in a field up to their necks and had the field ploughed. Now, anyone who thinks that the time of the Buddha was a, a, a time of great spiritual awareness and, <laughs> and love and wisdom may, I think, have finally had that idea dashed by this sort of behavior. Sariputta also dies. We, again, the, the texts are not very clear as to under what circumstances. There's no suggestion he was killed, but it seemed that he also passed away somewhere apart from the Buddha, while the Buddha was making his final journey. And so we're left, really, with Kasapa and Ananda. Ananda's the memory bank, in some ways completely indispensable, but he's also not an arhant. As he says, I'm just a learner. He's a stream entrant. He's, he's entered the path, but he hasn't realized the full extent of its fruits, whereas Kasapa has. And this gives Kasapa some kind of advantage. Kasapa also, remember, is a former Brahmin from Magadha, a person of influence, of connections, of authority, whereas Ananda has always served the Buddha, has not, as it were, um, risen to such preeminence in the community. We now have to jump to the Kasapa Sangyutta, the collected discourses on Kasapa, that we find tucked away in section 16 of the Sangyutta Nikaya. And there are two episodes here that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi acknowledges because of the language took place after the Buddha's death. And they concern the um, interactions between Kasapa and Ananda that I think are very telling in the light of the struggle that is now following the Buddha's demise. So this is the first episode. So one morning, Ananda dressed and took his bowl and robe and approached the Venerable Mahakasapa and said, Come, Venerable Kasapa, let us go to the nuns' quarters. And Kasapa says, You go, Ananda. You're the busy one with all the duties. And so Ananda asks him twice more, and eventually he says, okay, let's go. So in the morning, Venerable Kasapa went to the Bhikkhuni's quarter with the Venerable Ananda as his companion. When he arrived, he sat down on the appointed seat, and a number of nuns approached Mahakasapa and sat down to one side. And then Kasapa gives a discourse. He instructed, exhorted, inspired and gladdened those nuns, those bhikkhunis, with a Dhamma talk, after which he rose from his seat and departed. Then the bhikkhuni, the nun, Tulatisa, being displeased, expressed her displeasure thus, How can Mahakasapa think of speaking on the Dhamma in the presence of Ananda, the sage? For Mahakasapa to think of speaking on the Dhamma in the presence of Ananda, well, this is just as if a needle seller would think he could sell a needle to the needle maker. <laughs> now, unfortunately, Mahakasapa overheard the bhikkhuni Tulatisa <laughs> making this statement and said to the venerable Ananda, How is it, Ananda? Am I the needle seller? and you the needle maker? Or am I the needle maker, and you the needle seller? Or be patient, sir, says Ananda. You know how foolish women are. (laughs) But wait. Kasapa says, careful, Ananda. Don't give the community occasion to investigate you further. In other words, don't stand up for the nuns. Otherwise, 
we'll have further in occasion to investigate you for um, basically inappropriate behavior for a monk. Anand is defending the nuns here. It's quite clear from this comment that follows. Kasapa then accuses him of standing up for them instead of standing up for him. And we get a very clear sense in this, again, extremely curious little episode that's been recorded of the screws tightening. What do you think, Kasapa continues, what do you think, Ananda? Was it you that the Buddha brought forth into the presence of the community and said, Monks, to whatever extent I wish, I enter and dwell in the jhanas, in the stages of enlightenment, and he goes through the whole list of things. And did the Buddha then say, Ananda too, to whatever extent he wishes, dwells and enters in the first jhana and so forth and so on? And Ananda says, no, sir. Kasapa says, I was the one, friend, that the Buddha brought forth in the presence of the community saying, because to whatever extent I wish, I enter and dwell in the first jhana and so on, Kasapa too, to whatever extent he wishes, enters and dwells in the first jhana and so on. I was the one, friend, that the Buddha brought forth in the presence of the community saying, By the destruction of the taints, in this very life, I enter and dwell in the taintless liberation of mind. Kasapa too, by the destruction of the taints, enters and dwells in the taintless liberation of mind. Friend Ananda, one might just as well think that a bull elephant seven cubits high could be concealed by a palm leaf as to think that my enlightenment could be concealed. (laughs) So he's comparing himself basically to a bull elephant, an ananda to a palm leaf. But then it says, but the bhikkhuni Tulatisa fell away from the holy life. In other words, she was kicked out. Now then, the next sutta, section 11 in the Kasapa Sunyuta, continues in a similar vein. And it seems that this now took place shortly before the council because we find them in Rajgir. On one occasion, the Venerable Mahakasapa was dwelling in Rajgaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Now on that occasion, Venerable Ananda was wandering on tour in Dakinagiri together with a large community of monks. Now on that occasion, 30 monks, pupils of the Venerable Ananda, most of them youngsters, had given up the training and returned to the lower life. In other words, they'd disrobed. The people around Ananda were starting to leave the order. Now Kasapa hears about this, and this is what he says to Ananda. He says, why, friend Ananda, Are you wandering about with these young monks who are unguarded in their sense faculties, immoderate in eating, and not devoted to wakefulness? One would think that you were wandering about trampling on crops. One would think that you were wandering about destroying families. Your retinue is breaking apart, Ananda. Your young followers are slipping away. You do not know your measure, boy. He uses the word boy. And Ananda says, Are these not grey hairs growing on my head? (laughs) Please do not call me boy. And then another nun, this time called Tulananda, overheard this exchange. And she says, Mahakasapa has disparaged Ananda the sage by calling him a boy. How can Kasapa, who was formerly a member of another sect, think to disparage Ananda by calling him a boy. And then Kasapa overhears the thing and justifies himself once again, and I'll just recite one brief passage here. If, friend, he says to Ananda, one one speaking rightly could say of anyone, he is a son of the Buddha, born of his breast, born of his mouth, born of the Dhamma, created by the Dhamma, 
an heir to the Dhamma, a receiver of worn-out hemp and rag robes. It is of me that one could rightly say that. But the Bhikkhuni Tulananda fell away from the holy life. So, again, I don't have to comment on this. I think it's all fairly self-evident. There is a serious conflict emerging between perhaps two ways of understanding what the Buddha had taught. And this becomes even more explicit when we now jump back to the Kulavaga 11, which is the Vinaya text. And uh, we find that Ananda is, <clears throat> is hauled before the assembled elders prior to the first council. He's yet to become an Arhant. And um, they then basically um, uh, criticize him. And they say, okay, Reverend Ananda, this is an offense of wrongdoing for you in that you did not ask the Buddha, but what, Lord, are the lesser and minor rules of training? Confess that offense as a wrongdoing. Shortly before the Buddha died, he said, Ananda, you need not follow the minor rules. And Ananda says, yes, of course. And now he's being criticized for not having asked exactly which minor rules. Again, to me, this is evidence of the legalistic mind coming into play. And so there's much discussion, but eventually Kasapa decides, well, if we can't agree on this, then we just keep all the rules, which means that even today, monks and nuns in this tradition observe rules that were really only meaningful in 5th century BC India. And Ananda says, Ananda says, out of unmindfulness I did not ask the Buddha which were the lesser and minor rules, but I do not see that as an offence of wrong, wrongdoing, but out of respect and faith in you, I confess that as an, as an offence of wrongdoing. Next criticism. This too is an offence for you, Ananda, in that you sewed the Lord's cloth for the rains after having stepped on it. Confess that as an offence of wrongdoing. Honoured sirs, it was not out of disrespect, having sewed the Lord's cloth for the rains, that I stepped on it. I do not see that as an offence of wrongdoing, but out of respect for you, I confess it as an offence of wrongdoing. This too is an offence, Ananda, in that you had the Lord's body first of all honoured by women. Because these were weeping, the Lord's body was defiled by their tears. Confess that as an offence of wrongdoing. And Ananda says the same. I do not consider this an offence of wrongdoing, but out of respect for you, I confess it. This too is an offence of wrongdoing, Ananda in that you made an effort for the going forth of women in the Dhamma and uh, the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the Buddha. Confess this as an offence of wrongdoing. But honoured sirs, I made an effort for the going forth of women, thinking this Gotamid Pajapati the Great is the Lord's aunt, foster mother, nurse, giver of milk, for whom, for when the Lord's mother passed away, she suckled him. I do not see that as an offence of wrongdoing, but out of respect for you, I confess it as an offence of wrongdoing. So you can see clearly here where the split is opening up. And I think it's on those passages that I would also feel that the Buddha was not actually the instigator of the more oppressive rules against women. But again, that's my own thought. If we jump now to a passage in the Teragata. The Teragata is a collection of verses attributed to the elder monks in the Pali Canon. You've, there's also the Terigata, the verses of the elder nuns. And if you haven't read these, they're very beautiful. It's worth reading. But most of the verses are fairly routine versifications of the main points of the Buddha's teaching, and they're not enormously interesting. But if you read through the verses attributed to Ananda, most of them are basically just synopses of the Buddha's teaching. But right in the middle, there is this verse, which, if you are looking for this kind of material, jumps off the page. 
This is um, Caroline Rice Davis's translation, made in 1913. So this is Arne. Arne does one of his verses. It says, They of the older time have passed away. The new men suit me not at all. Alone today this child does brood like nesting bird when rain does fall. So he's acknowledging that the Buddha, that Sariputta, Moggallana, these monks for whom he had enormous respect have passed away. The new men, and I think we have little doubt as to whom he's referring to by the new men, don't suit me at all. Alone today this child doth brood like nesting bird when rain doth fall. So he he compares himself to a young fledgling bird in a nest during the monsoon or during the rain and the mother bird and the father bird have departed. It's an enormously tragic image. And then we get to the eve of the first council itself, which takes place in the Satbapani caves in Rajgir, which again is, is still known where that is today. And it's here we get one of the few points where we can actually get a number count. It says that 500 arhats attended this gathering, but for those who have been to the caves, so I've been told, you can get in about a maximum of 50 at a squeeze. So it was a small group. And it's also telling that Kasapa insisted that all the other monks of the Sangha were not allowed to spend that rains in Rajgir. This was a small elect group who met together to recite the discourses and the vinya. And on the eve of the council, the night before, we have Ananda thinking along these lines. He says, tomorrow is the assembly. It's not suitable that me, a learner, should go there so having passed much of that night in mindfulness as to the body, when the night was nearly spent, he thought, I'll lie down now. And he inclined his body, but before his head touched the mattress, and while his feet were free from the ground, in that interval, his mind was freed from defilements. And so in other words... Again, this is very curious, I don't know what it means, but Ananda is the only person to have attained enlightenment when he wasn't sitting, walking, standing, or lying down, but in (laughs) mid-air. And then the next morning arrives, the assembly convenes, and Buddhism begins. Now, we don't know much about the fate of the other characters, Mahanama, the man who, in a way, was responsible for the final destruction of Shakya, is arrested. And before he's taken back to Kosala by Vidudaba, he asks to be able to take a last bath. And he's granted that. But instead of taking a bath, he drowns himself in the water. We hear nothing further of Vasaba, but then historians pay little attention to the fate of slave girls. Vidudaba also comes to a sticky end, apparently, but that could just be Buddhist wishful thinking. <laughs> some of the Mauryas, it seems, some of the Shakyans managed to escape to Maurya, which is to the northeast of Shakya, and Theravadan Buddhists believe that they were, in fact, the progenitors of the Mauryan dynasty. Ashoka, remember, was a Mauryan. So possibly some of them survived and were even the progenitors of that great empire. But in any case, our story really comes to a conclusion here.
This talk was given by Stephen Batchelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 28, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Ar- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.